Praise the Lord. Now, <clears throat> you will recall that um, last time I did speak, we were we looked at um, this portion of text, and we're looking at a bit of a theme on the word revival. And so, again, making the emphasis in Scripture, this particular word, uh, when it's used, it's, uh, its first and primary use means to bring back to life, to revive, to, um, to, to, to live again. And so, in this instance, it's talking very much to the believer, to the Christian and um, what was interesting is we made establish the fact that in the Old Testament, amongst the Israel as a nation, uh, we see a pattern of revival, and we looked at specifically King Hezekiah. Now, King Hezekiah was um, uh, a, a man after God's own heart. That's the way God described him after his father David. And so he had a heart for God. He had a heart that hungered for the Lord. He had a heart that desired to do right. He had a, a heart that desired to seek Him. And as a result of that, he brought a measure of revival to the nation and uh, through his leadership and amongst the people. And so we want to examine, and as we are, uh, this, this, this portion of text, these chapters in the Old Testament, and draw from them various principles and patterns uh, of, uh, of revival as we know it. Now you will recall, for those that were here, we looked at the prevailing circumstances when Hezekiah came into power to the throne and that Israel was in a state of, of apostasy. They were in disobedience to God. They were caught up in their idolatry. They had rebelled against the Lord. They had built altars and sacrificed at, on the high places and all of these things that were going on. And Hezekiah was a man who came and he wanted to bring about change. And you will recall that uh, Hezekiah, he, one of the, uh, the first things that he did when he came to the throne and assumed power was that he, the Bible says, is he opened the doors of the temple. You see, the temple doors had been shut. Men had uh, the nation and the king, his father, the king, and those before him had uh, forsaken God. They'd turned their backs on God and they'd given them themselves over to all forms of idolatry and false religion. And turn their backs on the true God, on the true one living God. And so having shut the door of the temple, they had uh, disregarded uh, their God. And so here now Hezekiah comes and he's about to bring change. And it's this whole process of change that I want to examine with you in the scriptures. I want us to identify because in this we find a personal application to our own lives. Remember the door of the temple. The Bible says now that, that Christ is in us, that we are the temple and that God dwells in us and Christ lives in us, the Holy Spirit. And so this temple, this door of the heart, amen, must be open and uh, in doing so the fullness of God must dwell within the human heart because we can quench the spirit, we can grieve the spirit, and in doing so, we can isolate, push, and the Spirit withdraws. And so we want the fullness of God. We don't want to shut the door of the temple of our heart. And so we looked at, at these things. And we've, uh, we considered the high places as well, you'll remember. The inner depths of the heart where we can re re uh, resort to and, uh, and, uh, and worship. And how these things are forbidden and how these things must be torn down now remember inside when Hezekiah opened the doors of the temple what was in there the Bible says that there was lots of rubbish had it accumulated and because the temple had been neglected there was rubbish within the temple and that uh, had to be that rubbish had to be cleared out and Hezekiah was intent on doing that and so we looked at and made the comparison that sometimes we can have rubbish in our own lives. There can be rubbish in our own hearts. 
that's uh, sit, dwelling in that and it's in that temple and that has to be cleansed, it has to be removed, it has to be re- uh, taken away. And uh, that can be in various ways, shapes and forms, but nevertheless, it's all rubbish uh, that interferes uh, in our relationship with God, that uh, hinders our, our walk with the Lord and so forth. And so, again, this is a time in which we are examining our hearts before God. And uh, as I said as well, you will remember on one of the quotes I said, revivals don't always begin happily with everyone having a good time as we understand them in the modern age. Uh, But if you look at them scripturally, what you'll find is they start, all renewal and all revival start um, with a broken and a contrite heart before God. When God's people are willing to repent when God's people are are willing to open that door when God's willing people are willing to clear out the rubbish when God's people are willing to uh, get right with God and be renewed and be refreshed and be revived and really this is the need of the hour and let's face it in this journey we require it and we need it and we must be filled with the spirit of God and this is again and again and again praise the Lord Thank God that he is faithful. So I want to look at Hezekiah. I want to look at other aspects that we see in the scripture, examine with you this morning, and just, again, draw out various truths and apply them to our own lives. But let's read from verse 1 in chapter 29, and let's uh, read from there to verse 19. Follow with me. The Bible says, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves. Sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. They've also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps and have not burned Incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation and to jeering as you see with your eyes. For indeed because of this our fathers have fallen by the sword and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have, um, oh, sorry, verse 10. Now it is in, now listen, verse 10. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now. For the Lord has chosen you to stand before him to serve him and that you should minister to him and burn incense. Then these Levites arose, um, Mathath, the son of uh, Amasai and Joel, the son of Azariah, the sons of the Kohathites, the sons of Merari, Kish, the son of Abdi, Azariah, the son of whoever, <laughs> Jal, I need my um, Hebrew accent here, uh, of the Gershonites, uh, Joah, the son of Zimah, and Eden, the son of jo, Joah, of the sons of Elizaphan, Shimri, <laughs> gee, I should have practiced this before I read it. Uh, the sons of Asaph, Zechariah, and Mataniah. Of the sons of, anyway, let's go down to verse 15, shall we? And they gathered their brethren, sanctified themselves, and went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. Then the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it. And brought out all the debris and they found, that they found in the temple and the Lord, uh, in the temple of the Lord, to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it out and carried it to the brook Kidron. Now they began to sanctify on the first day of the first month, and on the eighth day of the eighth, uh, they came to the vestibule of the Lord. 
So they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days, and on the sixteenth day of the first month they finished. Then they went to King Hezekiah and said, We have cleansed the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offerings, with all its articles, then the table of showbread with all its articles. Moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz in his reign had cast aside in his transgression, we have prepared and sanctified, and there they are, before the altar of the Lord. Now, let's make a bit of sense of this. Now, Hezekiah, as we've read he, and looked at last time, he's opened the doors of the temple. He has repaired the, the doors of the temple. And now he is uh, gathering together the priests and the Levites because now it's his intent to give them instructions on what they need to do in order to get right with God, in order to get things in order, and the temple in order, and to begin to worship the true and living God as they once had. And so the key words that I want to bring to our attention this morning is found in verse 10 where it says, Now it is in my heart. See, listen to the words of King Hezekiah as he addresses the Levites and the priests and he's gathered them all together because they were the ones that were responsible for, the, uh, for the, um, all the responsibilities and tendering to the temple. And so he says these words, it is in my heart. You see, these words are critical. They are fundamental for us in, in relation to serving God and getting things in order because this is where it all begins. Amen? It begins in the heart. And Hezekiah is, uh, as, uh, you know, it's well within his right just to get before, as the king, just to get before the, the priests and the Levites and just start throwing around commands and instructions on what to do. But no, he is sharing them with them first and laying a foundation and a motivation for doing what they will do. And that is this, is that first it begins in King Hezekiah, it is in my heart. And in other words, what he's wanting to do is he's in, in speaking to the Levites, he wants to ensure that it is in their heart. Because this is how it must begin. This is how revival begins. This is how renewal begins. It begins in me. It begins in my heart. It begins in your heart. And so it cannot be an external thing and outward and mere forms of religion. We can get all of those things in picture perfect condition but still be dead and full of dead man's bones as Jesus would have said to the Pharisees. You can get all the outside polished up, but it's what's happening on the inside. It's in the heart. And so here it is. Uh, Hezekiah says, it's in my heart. You see, Hezekiah is seeking to lead the people and bring them with him. Not just to rule over them, although he has the power and it's within his right to do so. He's seeking, uh, and though he has determined in his own heart what he's going to do, he has determined he wants to bring the priests and the Levites with him so that they too would have it in their heart. And listen to what he says in verse 5. As he gathers them, he says, And he said to them, Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves. Listen to the, the cry of his heart. Hear me. Or in other words, not so much in the context of verse 10. What he's saying is not just the words that I speak. They're very important. But beyond that, it is in my heart. And the words that are proceeding from my mouth are a result of that which is in my heart. And so he says to them, hear me, sanctify yourselves in verse 5 and sanctify the house of the Lord. And so we can understand that as well as it relates to ourselves, sanctify yourself individually. But even as a church, the house of God must be sanctified. Amen. 
We cannot allow sin to dwell and because where there's living, it livens the whole lump. And so and there is, there's aspects in which, uh, in, in the context of which Paul talks about it in Corinthians, where there's uh, certain things that can be deadly to the body. And so, sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord. And the call that Hezekiah is making to the people of God is one which is separate yourselves. Sanctify, be set apart. Set yourselves apart from the idolatry. Set yourselves apart from the false religion. Set yourselves apart from all those pagan practices and begin to worship and serve the, the living God in accordance with the truth and that which he has revealed. Sanctify yourselves. Set yourselves apart. Be holy for God is holy. This is exactly what is being communicated here. And this is the essence of what Hezekiah is referring to. And he's saying, and it's in light of that, that he says, and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. Because the house of God is filled with rubbish. It has to be cleansed. Isn't that what Jesus did when he went into the temple and he saw them there, the money changers, and they were in there changing money and making profit? What did Jesus do? <laughs> he said, there's too much rubbish here. We're going to do a bit of a clean out. So he gets a whip and he runs through the temple and, uh, he, and he scatters them, turns the tables upside down and he drives them out. Because he's clearing out the temple, he's getting rid of the rubbish. And sometimes there's rubbish that needs to get rid of. Amen? And so we see where it starts. And Hezekiah is giving instructions to the Levites. But note this, he communicates later. It's, this is not just you know, some rules and regulations that I'm giving you. He says, it's in my heart. It's in my heart. That's why I speak like this. It's in my heart. That's why I'm saying these words. Remember, you can do what's right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart. It has to be in the heart. And so in Hezekiah this morning, what we see is we see a man who's showing us what it is to be a a godly leader, I guess, because when you look at Hezekiah, you, that is what you see. Hezekiah is not being a dictator, although to some degree he has a right to. He's the king. <laughs> he can do what he wants. But Hezekiah is distinctively seeking to lead and bring the Levites and the people with him. And he's doing that, and we're seeing this clearly throughout this portion of text. Because as it, and he, he understands as it is in his heart, it must be in their heart. So what's he going to do? How's he going to do this? Well, we'll look at that in the moment. But, you know, the easiest thing to do is just to make up some rules, right? Just to make up some rules and say, listen, this is how it is. Uh, uh, this is what the Christian life is about. Or, or this is what we need to do. And so these are the rules, A, B, C and D. Follow it. But is that going to do the job? It's not. It's not going to be sufficient. You can't make rules and you can't legislate these things. And that applies to the government and it applies to the church. We can't. It's, the issue, it's an issue of the heart. You know what's interesting is when you read about King Asa in 2 Chronicles 15... And the Bible says that um, uh, he made a covenant with the Lord, and as Hezekiah will too. Uh, so I, don't, I want to be careful here. I don't want to criticize what Asa did because the Bible commends what Asa did. But what I'm trying to highlight here is that, as we see in Hezekiah's case and compared to Asa, there's various things to consider and its context and other things. But the point is this. In Asa's day, they made a covenant, and anyone who did not enter into the covenant was to be put to death. How's that? <laughs> That's what it says. Second Chronicles 15. Hey, wouldn't that just make it easy? Listen, this is the deal. Do it or you're going to die. Simple as that. Okay, who's in? Yep, I'm in. 
But you see, that's not even going to work. Not in the sense that it, it must be much, much deeper and it must be much, much more. It has to be of the heart. You see, it, it, fear alone is not the way in which we are going to get God's people to serve him. It must be more than fear alone. It must be a heart of love, a heart that hungers, a heart that desires, a heart that loves the Lord with such a, a passion. And I tell you, there's no, we can't put that in an individual. But you know what, Ken, if it's in me, then maybe what, see, they say that truth is not taught, it's caught. And so if I'm leading, and this is what Hezekiah is doing, is he's leading, he's trying to bring the others with him and that they would embrace it and catch it. And then that is imparted, so to speak. And that's, that's a biblical principle Paul the Apostle would even say and do that in that same way. But fear alone is not going to achieve what God ultimately desires from the human heart. It's part of it. You can't neglect it. Actually, we'll see it in a minute. But one man said these words, a person cannot be forced to serve God. And I can tell you now, if there's anyone that's going to be, uh, come close to that category, it's probably me, okay? If you were to ask my children and raised up in my, in my family, I'm very, I was uh, very strict in these areas. And I'm not saying that those things are bad, but we're like, we, like anything, they have their inherent dangers and their, and their own you know, unique problems. But at the end of the day, a child has to come up to a point where they're going to embrace Christ for themselves, where it's in their heart. Because if it's not in their heart, it ain't going to happen. Eventually, they, do, they will depart. They will drift away. They will turn their back on the Lord. So here it is, a, a statement. A person cannot be forced to serve God. He cannot be legislated into righteousness and fear alone cannot make him a faithful steward in God's service. There must be a desire in the heart of the individual and how true it is. And Hezekiah said it, it's in my heart. And in effect, he's trying to say to the Levites and the priests, let it be in your heart too. And so amongst us this morning, let it be the same. So Hezekiah is addressing them and he's explaining their situation in verse 5. Um, in, sorry, look at verse 6. He says, for our fathers have trans transgressed. They've done evil and they've forsaken him and they've turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and they've turned their backs on him. And so he's saying to them that this is the condition, this is what is, has happened. Our forefathers and the people have done this. And he says uh, um, they've shut the doors of the, of, the, of the temple and the lamps are put out and there's no incense burning and the offerings are not being made in verse 7. And look at verse 8. Therefore the wrath of the Lord fell upon them. And he talks about the consequences and look at verse 10. Now it is in my heart. But he also says that the wrath of God is looming over the people. And so what I'm trying to say here is that, um, you know, he says that his fear, uh, his, um, in verse 10, that his fierce wrath may, may not fall upon us. You see, we can't neglect the reality of, you know, people say, oh, well, God's love. Oh, well, but, you know, the Bible says, consider the goodness and the severity of God. And yes, God is a loving God, but God is a, a God of righteousness and holiness and justice, and he's a God of wrath. And he will judge the wicked. He will condemn the wicked. And the wicked will be in eternal punishment. Hell, the Bible talks about it. And so the wrath of God is looming and so the fear of God is a good motivator but it's not the only motivator. And because in the Christian life especially it can't just be fear that is the motivator and uh, though we must be mindful and we must fear the Lord but it must come down to this in my heart. I want to, I desire to, I, 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 I long to. As the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. 
And so it's in, his, it's in Hezekiah's heart. Look at verse 10. Now it is in my heart. What's in his heart? To make a covenant with the Lord, God of Israel. To make a covenant. Now think about this because I spoke about Asa earlier. He made a covenant with the people. Making a covenant, or you can call it a vow, making a vow to the Lord, is not a bad thing. But let me say this, it is a serious thing. In the scriptures, the Bible encourages us uh, to make vows, but it also warns us against making vows. Because if you vow and don't fulfill, then there's a consequence. There's, God holds us accountable. And so we don't enter into vows lightly. And so, uh, you know, yes, 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 yes. No, and then, you know, people don't fulfill it. You know what I'm saying? Let your yes be yes, your no be no. But in this instance, he's entering, he says, let's enter into a covenant. Let's make a vow. Let's make a decision, a contract with God. This is what we're going to do. And so in light of things, this is something that we can consider as well. This is not something that we just, you know, oh, well, that's got to do with them. We too can make uh, um, various uh, 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 covenants with God in relation to various things. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 4, it says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. <laughs> so, and in Scripture, there's much throughout the Scriptures that talks about this. And it encourages us to do it. But it's, again, it's not just a haphazard thing. It's not just a light thing. This is something that's very serious, very heavy, very weighty. And if you're going to make such a, a, a decision, make sure that you fulfill it. But if it's in your heart, do it. It was in Hezekiah's heart to make a covenant. And this is what he was communicating to the Levites. You see, look at verse 11. Hezekiah is saying to, to them to embrace what he is doing. And in verse 11, he's seeking to motivate them. And he says, my sons, do not be negligent. Now for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him to serve him, that you should minister him and burn incense. Or in other words, uh, he, he's saying to them, don't you realize you're the people of God? You are his children. You are those that are to bear testimony to his name. You are, we are ambassadors for Christ. And so don't you realize the, the special people that you are in Christ Jesus? Don't you understand that you are his hands and his feet? Don't you understand that, that you are to bear witness and bear testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Don't you realize that, <coughs> that we have been chosen by God and we have a purpose? And so he's trying to get them to see outside of themselves. He's trying to get them to see the bigger picture, the bigger plan, the bigger purpose of God. It's not just, not my will be done, but your will be done. <coughs> and so he's, motiv he's seeking to motivate them. And... He, and, and in doing so, you can read, those, well, we won't go through it because it's got all these names that they're difficult to pronounce, but nevertheless, they responded. They were responding in the same manner after Hezekiah. And in verse 15, it says, They gathered their brethren, sanctified themselves, and went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the, the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. They said, yep. Let's do it. As it's in your heart, it's in my heart. And they came together, they collaborated amongst themselves, and they went about, and they, the Bible says they went to cleanse the house of the Lord. They had determined in their own hearts to remove the rubbish. Look at verse 16. Then the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it. The inner part. The inner part. You know, 
the inner part is where all of us sometimes it's hidden from those around us but the inner part is in each of us but God sees the inner part as we looked at last time in Ezekiel he and he God sees the inner part so they went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and they brought out all the debris all the rubbish that was in there and they cleansed the house of the Lord they made a, a good a, a work and response to, to the Lord. And the lessons of this obviously are very self-explanatory. But, but we must prepare ourselves before the Lord. We must examine ourselves before the Lord. We must test our own hearts before the Lord. The Bible says examine yourselves, test yourselves. Now, in verse 18 it says... Then they went, into, they went to King Hezekiah and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar, the burnt offerings with all of its articles, and the table of showbread with all of its articles. And so this is very interesting for us to consider what is going on here. And I, th- I just want to highlight a couple of things because there's some, there's, there's, there's some things here are symbolic and they would do well for us to, to understand here. Because uh, listen to what it says, they cleansed all the house of the Lord and the altar of burnt offerings and all its articles and the table of the showbread with all of its articles and the, the, the altar of burnt offerings and the, um, the, the, uh, the, show, the table of showbread are symbolic. And again, there are multi-aspects to this, but I just want to focus in on a couple of thoughts here. And as they relate to us as Christians this morning, not so much to Israel or even to Christ himself as the tabernacle and all that relates to the utensils, they all speak of Christ. But they also teach us a lesson as well. And what is interesting, when we think of the altar of burnt offerings, uh, we, they, had to re, they had to repair that. They had to get it in order. And so we think about this and we understand as later in the next chapter they begin to uh, offer sacrifices and make atonement. And so thank God for Christ. Amen. Thank God for the ultimate sacrifice that we can cling to the old rugged cross. That we can come back to the cross and confess and find the forgiveness and find cleansing. Not just in salvation but in repentance and constant renewal and revival in this context. But at the same time, as it relates to Christ, the altar of sacrifice, what does the Bible tell us in Romans 12? That we are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And even we ourselves, uh, amen, we are to, uh, uh, and even though Paul is speaking of this as a once and for all, uh, you know, in light of the, uh, the doctrine and the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus, let it be known, amen, that uh, the living sacrifice sometimes likes to do other things. So we've got to present ourselves again as a living sacrifice unto God. And so uh, this is the first thing, and when we do that, uh, that brings us into um, uh, obedience, into submission to God. As we, as we lay down our lives, as we surrender all. And so this is the issue of the altar of sacrifice. But there was another altar as well. The altar of incense that was in the, the, tem- the tabernacle. In the holy place. And you know what the... That was the altar of incense. And you know what that, that was? That, that would have had to be repaired and cleansed too. And that was uh, symbolic in terms of the Christian here. Uh, the, uh, the prayers of the saints. Prayer. Altar of the incense. And so, amen. Prayer. Establishing prayer again. It was good to see folks at prayer meeting on, on Friday and just the group that had come together. But I want to encourage us, let us, if we're at home, let's come be in the house of God. Let's come together corporately and pray. And so here it is, uh, there's, there's prayer. But you know, prayer is just more, than, it's not just supplications and intercessions, it incorporates that. But you know what prayer ultimately is? It serves as the basis of our relationship with God. 
And so when you consider that the scripture talks about the altar of burnt offering and the altar of incense we're kind of putting in there for free, but we can, act, we can, you know, we can make reference to it. But think now, there's the table of showbread. And in, in the holy place, there was a table that had the, uh, the bread, the showbread that was, uh, the priests had to put there. And, and at, at the end of the seven days, they had to take that out, put the fresh one in there and so forth. But you see, the, the, the table of showbread was symbolic to the Christian now in terms of our fellowship with God. And in repairing the table of showbread, they were, they were opening the doors of the temple. They were getting the altar in order. They were getting the altar of incense in order, prayer. They were setting up the table of showbread. And this is all symbolic of our approach to God and our own relationship to God. And isn't it a wonderful thing that we as, as Christians, we have a relationship with God. Eternal life, Jesus said in John 17, 3, is to know him, knowing God. And that represents not knowing about him, but knowing him in a relational way. You can know Christ. You can know God. That is Christianity, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so you have, we have a, a relationship with Jesus. But you see, the table of showbread, it represents uh, as it's before the Lord and uh, the bread of life uh, and our fellowship with the Lord. But in this case, they were repairing the table of showbread. And in, in this instance, they were restoring their fellowship with God, their relationship with God that had broken down. And so as I thought about that, I thought, you know, <clears throat> Again, going back to Revelation chapter 3, Jesus in the church of Laodicea is standing outside and he's knocking at the door and he's knocking and he says, if you open the door, I will come in. And what does he say? I will dine with you. As my brother Sam has on a couple of occasions now sought to enlighten my understanding from the Greek in relation to this. But that word dine is to... I mean, it represents a fellowship, but it also in the Greek carries a, a, an understanding that it res, represents the evening meal, a time in which they uh, come together and to fellowship. And so what, when Jesus says, I'll come in and I'll dine with you, he's talking about sweet fellowship, sweet relationship. And, uh, and so this, issue, this whole concept of the evening meal. And so again, uh, uh, going back into um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, where some of these things are addressed, how, what was going on in the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper, they were gathering together at, uh, at the evening meal and uh, their time of communion. And what were they doing? They were not conducting themselves properly. The table of showbread was in, dis, in, in so to speak, symbolic. It was uh, in disarray. And as a result of that, uh, you read in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, and uh, they're very serious words if you read it. And the Bible says because they were not conducting themselves appropriately in the Lord's table and amongst the, this, this, the whole concept of the showbread and the fellowship with God, they were, they were abusing it and sinning against God. And the Bible says that many were sick. And many were falling asleep, many were dying, and God was bringing a chastisement upon his people because of this. In, other, in, in essence, he was on the door knocking to the Corinthians, and they weren't listening, and then the wrath was looming, and judgment of God, and the chastisement of God comes upon them, and they lose their lives. And in actual fact, in chapter 10, Paul is addressing this even uh, so amongst them. And what does he say to them? In actual fact, let me read it to you. In 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, and we've already been talking about this in effect. I, and if you read the, the scriptures before, it's referring to Israel. But let's, and so it's therefore, in light of what? In light of Israel, that's what he's saying. In light of Israel, which we're looking at, 
My beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. Look at verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, it is, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh, and not those who eat of the sacrifice. Part, uh, sorry, observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything. And what is offered to idols is anything. Rather, what I'm saying is this, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice to, the Gentile world, and all of their religious and idolatrous practices, listen to this, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. And then he says to the church, to the brethren, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. And you cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? And so here's the Corinthians. They, 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 are, they, are, they are under judgment because of the, of, uh, of the way in which they're, they're practicing their idolatry. They're at the table. Uh, they're worshipping idols and they're, the various things in, uh, part, they're partaking in and what that is bringing upon them in terms of the God's judgment. But, but the, my point in saying all of this is that they were out of fellowship with God as a result of this. And we as Christians, we, we can be out of fellowship with God. We can grieve the Holy Spirit of God and quench the Spirit to such an extent that we don't even, He's, he's not there. He's not present. And this is why we talk about revival. This is why we're talking about renewal. Because we want to be refreshed. That's why the Bible says in um, Acts 3 verse 19, repent and be converted and times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. So you can see some of the things that we are dealing with. And Paul said to the church in Corinth, he said, enough is enough. And Hezekiah was saying to the children of Israel, enough is enough. And the Levites responded. And so I pray that we too, in the same manner, if necessary, we would respond as the Lord would deal with us. In verse 11, just to go back in Second Chronicles 29, in verse 11, Hezekiah says, don't be negligent. Don't neglect you know what we are, we're all guilty of it. We neglect the things that we have, to, the rubbish that's in our lives. I can say amen. We neglect the rubbish that is there. But you see, the debris has to get clean, cleaned up, has to get taken out. This temple has to be holy. So don't neglect and so can I ask us, can we ask ourselves this morning, what are we neglecting? What are we neglecting in our lives that needs to be addressed and needs to be put right? Sin, issues of the heart, issues of our lives. Are we neglecting the word of God? Are we neglecting prayer? Are we neglecting prayer meetings? You know, can I encourage you, church, as, as is practically possible, come to the prayer meeting. We have it twice a month. Make a vow. That's a good vow. You know, oh, I've got a party tonight. I've got to go to the movies tonight. Forget all that rubbish. Two times a month we come together corporately to pray. Let's make it a priority. Let's say, you know what, this, this party is not negotiable. Now, I understand there may be some things there. These things happen, but um, you know you can you understand. Let it be in your heart, because if it's not in your heart, you won't be there. Simple as that. But 
you know, uh, the, the fellowship of brethren. Are we neglecting church? You know, I, all these things, I don't know, but I trust that the Lord, the Holy Spirit will speak to us each individually. And we need to repent. We must, we must like, like the Levites, determine in our own hearts. We must make choices. We must make some decisions. We must exercise some discipline. We must present ourselves as a sacrifice unto the Lord. What does the Bible say in the New Testament? James chapter 4, verse 7. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I think it's verse 9, actually, but it's in that in that section there. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You know, we talk about so much how it's God's initiative. It's God, it's all God, and it's God. And, 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 this, and that's true. There are various tensions in the Christian life, but here it says you draw near to God. You draw near to God, and then, then he'll draw near to you. That doesn't, we don't like to think about that because that puts a lot of the onus on us. But that's how it is. That's what the scripture says. In actual fact, read those words in James and they're very heavy. In actual fact, let me read it to you. In, if you can, turn to James chapter 4 and, and uh, uh, look at James's words. They're extremely um, strong. And he says in verse 4, in the context of the, the, the problems amongst themselves and what's going on amongst themselves. He says these words, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. And whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, Paul, uh, James says. Or do you not think that the scripture says in vain that the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? You know, the Holy Spirit, we, we are the temple of God. The Spirit of God is in us. Uh, and I tell you, our God is a jealous God. He is jealous for us. Paul, who had the same heart, said to the church at Corinth, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. And that godly jealousy is pure. It is holy. It is good. It's not just the jealousy that's in the, in the worldly sense that is negative uh, and wrong. But in this instance, uh, there, the spirit that dwells in us yearns jealously because he has brought, uh, God has brought us with a price. We are not our own. And so the spirit wants us to himself. God wants us uh, fully, wholeheartedly. And in, in Proverbs chapter 23, uh, I read it this morning, I think it's verse 26. Uh, it says, my son, give me your heart. The Spirit yearns jealously because He wants our devotion. He wants our heart. He wants our love. And when that's not there, then as Paul spoke to the church in Corinth in chapter 10, he says, if we want to drink at the, cup of uh, uh, at the table of demons and the table of the Lord, then he says, do you want to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Don't provoke God to jealousy because you know what? God, does, he, he, God will deal with us. He will deal with us. That's what is being, it's just what Paul's saying. This is what James is saying. And that's why he goes on, James, he says, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. And in verse uh, six, but he gives more grace. <laughs> he gives more grace. It's not just a demanding, do this. But he gives more grace to empower us, to help us, because sometimes we do struggle in our own flesh. We will, but we can't find the strength to will, to do that. And so God empowers us, amen, through his spirit. But listen, he gives grace, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, verse 7, submit to God, resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Now listen to what he says. Cleanse you ha your hands, you sinners. That's a good recipe for revival, isn't it? <laughs> Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
and humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord that he will lift you up. This is a revival. And so there must be holiness of life, church. There must be obedience. There must be. But you see, if we, God gives, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. A broken and a contrite heart, he will not despise. And when we come to him broken, when we come to him and we say, Lord, it's not like it should be. Lord, I'm sorry. God, I repent. Then you know what? That's when we find mercy. That's when we find grace. And then he will lift us up when we are at our lowest. And in him, amen, he cleanses us and purifies us and washes us. And so, remember Habakkuk's words? In wrath, remember mercy. It's about God's mercy. Habakkuk knew it. Hezekiah knew it. And others, kings in the Old Testament knew it. And so, Lord, we need your mercy. Is it in our heart to make a covenant with God this morning? What is God speaking to you about? What have you been neglecting? What have I, let's examine our own hearts. What have we, me and you, what areas can we improve on? What areas do we need to change? God, give us grace. God, help us. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you this morning, Lord, for your spirit. We thank you, Father, for the grace of God that has appeared to all men. The grace of God that teaches us. The grace of God that empowers us. Father, I just thank you, Lord, that we can look at your word and see Israel. We can see Hezekiah. We can see, Lord, your people. We can see the church. We can see even ourselves. My God, have your way in our hearts this morning. I pray, God, for your people that are here. Lord, I pray, speak to each one of us in accordance with, Lord, where we're at and, Lord, with the issues at hand. I also pray, God, for those that are with us that don't know you. I pray, God, that you would reveal yourself. God, reveal yourself. Lord, save a soul. God, save sitters. Lord, pluck them from the, the, the fires of hell, Lord, that they could receive forgiveness of sins, that they could make heaven their home and that they could receive and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.